live streaming with the new setup? Is that an affirmative? That's an affirmative. Okay, thumbs up. Okay, we're operating with the new, the new system. So ho- our hope is that we won't be having any more glitches on the live streaming because of, uh, or due, due to this problem of, first of all, the type of uh, internet programming shifting from the Microsoft uh, video player over to uh, the new system, and then the server shifting from Canada down to uh, down to the U, down to Dallas, down to the Republic of Texas. So everything's uh, operating correctly as it should be. I don't think uh, there are any announcements. Uh, just. They're coming up other than this weekend is uh, Resurrection Sunday. Tomorrow is Good Friday. Someone sent me an interesting link the other day related to some of the chronology during the, uh, uh, during the last week before the crucifixion, a new, new book out by the uh, some professor at Cambridge, so I haven't had time to, I've ordered it, haven't had time to review it yet. So uh, I'll cover some of those issues later on. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure everyone is in fellowship, ready to study the word, and I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, this is a special week this week. There are many historical reminders of the freedom the freedom that we have, the basis for freedom, going back to the events of Passover in 1446 B.C. to the events in 1775 at Lexington and Concord, the events in 1836 at San Jacinto, and ultimately the battle that was won that provided us with the freedom of all freedoms, and that is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary, where he died to set us free from sin. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening, as we think through some of the difficult, challenging things that are there, that uh, we are able to concentrate, focus, not fall asleep, not uh, get distracted by uh, thinking about the events of the weekend or things coming up or things that have happened during the day, but we can put our attention upon, uh, upon you and upon your word. 
And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I stated in the introduction on Tuesday night, this is a week of tremendous uh, historical events. On uh, Monday night at sundown, uh, Pesach began, which is the Hebrew for Passover, and uh, that extends until sundown this next Monday. Then on Tuesday, which was April the 19th, otherwise known in New England as Patriots Day, I don't think it, I don't ever remember observing Patriots Day here. It was too close to San Jacinto Day. And uh, that was the anniversary of the Battle of Lexington and Concord, which began on Lexington Green when Pastor Jonas Clark called out the men in his congregation to defend. Uh, actually, he was defending the parsonage where he was hiding. Uh, John Adams and John Hancock and the British went out that uh, were out headed to Lexington and then to Concord uh, at that time, first of all, to arrest Hancock and Adams, and second, to destroy the cache of arms that the uh, American colonists had stored in Concord. And so we see the principle that it is the when the citizenry has the uh, freedom to protect themselves from the intrusion of government, then you have freedom. But there's always the conflict in history between the freedom of the individual and the power and authority of government. And that was exemplified in the Passover event in the act of God in giving freedom to the Israelites in bringing them out from slavery in Egypt. And if we think about it, there's a lot of lessons that are parallel between these historical events of Passover, the Patriots Day, the battles of Lexington and Concord, and then today for all Texans know that today on April 21st is the anniversary of the Battle of San Jacinto when In uh, 18 minutes, the uh, uh, forces uh, under General Sam Houston surprised and defeated the army, a much larger army of uh, Santa Ana, uh, just down the road a little bit, at uh, the Battle of San Jacinto. And that is where, as the Republic of Texas and the citizens of Texas gained their freedom. And so we see that in each of these cases, there are certain parallels, There is freedom in each instant comes as a result of the shedding of blood. People who have their freedom given to them without having to earn it and earn it at the cost of the lives of their fellow citizens and their family members do not appreciate what they have in freedom. And it doesn't take long before a civilization squanders its freedom when they become dependent, when they take that freedom for gratitude and they slowly slip to the position where they are taking their, um, uh, they are becoming dependent upon government. And there's always this tension. Government is a divine institution, but there are specific guidelines given in Scripture and limitations placed upon human government. Human government has as its divine purpose to protect its citizenry from the internal threat of criminality and the external threat 
of foreign invasion. And that's pretty much the extent of the role of government. When it goes much beyond that, then it threatens the liberty of the citizens. And liberty isn't some autonomous thing that just sort of hangs out there that we're free to do what we want to do. Freedom, as it was gained at the original Passover, freedom as it was gained through the American War for Independence, and freedom as it was gained in the War of Texas Independence, was freedom from intrusive government. It was freedom from tyrannical government. Freedom and liberty is always seen as freedom from the overreach of government. And government, because government ultimately falls and is carried out by sinful men who have power lust, approbation lust, and money lust, and many other lust patterns that uh, control them, uh, always seek to uh, elevate themselves at the expense of the freedoms of people. And so you look at these events in history, and we recognize that the, the importance of freedom, the importance of liberty always comes uh, when there is death. At the Passover, it was the death of the firstborn sons among the Egyptians that finally finally pushed the Pharaoh to the point of letting the Israelites go. They were protected by the death of the lamb, the sacrificed lamb whose blood was applied to the door uh, door frame of the house. And God passed over that house and did not bring the tenth plague upon any house that had its, had the blood of the lamb applied. That, of course, foreshadowed the death of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then you have the two other historical events that we see that provide uh, political freedom. One of the things that both of those events have in common, the event at Concord, Lexington and Concord, and the event at San Jacinto, is that the thinking, the thought system that undergirded those individuals, the, the, the thinking that gave them the motivation to do what they did and to die for their friends and for their families and ultimately to gain uh, freedom was a thought system that came out of the Old Testament. That's one thing all of these, these three events have in common. With the deliverance of the Jews from Egypt, after they crossed the Red Sea, they went to Mount Sinai where God gave them the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law was a legal system for that nation, but it was a legal system that was designed to preserve the freedom that God gave them in the Exodus event. It was a freedom that was based on private ownership of property and the implications of private ownership of property as seen in the commandments such as thou shalt not steal indicate the right of people to own property and for that property to be uh, protected. And it is the rights of property from which uh, the thinkers in the English tradition, uh, especially the Puritans who were lovers of the Old Testament, they, they loved the Old Testament so much that uh, after the uh, in that period after the Reformation in the development of the Puritan tradition in the late uh, 1500s, they would seek out uh, rabbis to teach them Hebrew, and they named their children names from the Old Testament. 
and they were they they were just uh, uh, infatuated with the Old Testament. They recognized that law, that all civil law throughout the centuries was grounded upon the law of God as exemplified in the Ten Commandments and the whole of the Mosaic Law, which protected private ownership of property. It protected people from the intrusion of governmental authority, and it gave them a true system of freedom because it was based ultimately on spiritual freedom. And so it was from that Old Testament law that the English legal theorists of the uh, 17th century, uh, as they explored the implications of the Mosaic Law, built and constructed a, a system of understanding economics and free enterprise and the, based on the private ownership of property and the right of individuals to earn a living and to create wealth and to make themselves wealthy without fear that the government would come along and dictate how they were to spend their money. This last week we had a president of this country in violation of everything our Constitution stands for stand up and have, have the, uh, the audacity to tell the, peop- the wealthy people in this country that they ought to give up more money. And this is just absurd. Nobody ever got a job working for a poor, poor person. You get a job because wealthy people don't just sit around unless there's some drug dealer down in Mexico, and I'm sure some of you have seen some of these pictures floating around the Internet of these drug dealers who have houses that are just filled with stacks of dollar bills and gold and everything else. But unless you're that kind of a person, if you are an entrepreneur and you have become wealthy in the United States through hard work, and it's hard work to use your brain, sometimes harder work than using your hands, but if you have worked hard and you have created wealth, you don't just let that, all that money sit at home. That's the implication that these demagogues are giving. You take that money and you put it in the bank. The bank, in turn, uses that money to lend out for small business loans, to lend out for home mortgages. Uh, they put it to work in, in numerous different ways. Uh, you can take your money, you can invest it in companies uh, by buying stocks. But, of course, uh, what we have from the demagogues is this accusation of the evil of Wall Street and the evil of capitalism. And if it weren't for capitalism, the people who are blaming capitalism wouldn't have anything that they have. They, would, they, they, they are usually coming from a position of affluence, and they wouldn't have any of that if it weren't for capitalism. So they are truly biting the hand that feeds them, and they don't understand freedom. The founding fathers of this country fought a basically a tax revolt with the revolt against the Stamp Act and the Townsend Acts and various other uh, acts that were imposed upon them by the uh, British government because they understood that to the degree that a citizen is allowed to keep and enjoy the fruits of his labor, to that degree he has freedom. But when you are taxed at 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 percent, to that degree you lose freedom because the ownership of your property and the ability to determine how you spend your wealth is a sign of freedom. And when the government steals from you and when it becomes egregious taxation, it is theft. 
because the government looks at the money that citizens produce. Government never produces wealth. Only citizens with innovation, with initiative, with a sense of responsibility, and the desire to risk the loss of everything uh, develop and produce wealth. And it is that production of wealth that brings prosperity to a people and to a nation. But when government deals with the money that and the wealth that is produced by its citizens in an irresponsible manner, by overextending their expenditures so that the nation goes into profound debt, then it is one of the greatest acts of theft. Um, you know, we allow the federal government to do something we didn't allow Bernie Madoff to do. And we put him in jail and think he's something evil. But it's the federal government that has done th things that are much worse. The Social Security system is a Ponzi scheme on such a grand level of expenditure that it makes Bernie Madoff look like a, wannabe, a criminal wannabe. And the same thing's true for Medicare and Medicaid, and yet we don't have leaders with the integrity to come out and, and really say, and say that we have a problem. And when somebody puts forth a solution, whether it's a good solution or not, a detailed plan to try to solve the problem, and then all you get from the other side is name-calling, uh, saying that the other side is un-American, that uh, all they want to do is take money away from the old and, uh, and steal from uh, the education of the young, and you don't see any actual detailed counterproductivity you just have the prescription for the collapse of a civilization. And freedom is lost not because of the power that's in Washington that has become corrupt, but freedom is lost because the individual citizens in the nation no longer have a burning desire to have the kind of freedom and liberty and individual and, and, and to uh, take responsibility for their individual lives like the generations of our founding fathers in the late 1700s or the generation that, that gained our independence in Texas in the 1830s. And they got that sense, that strong sense of individual rights and individual freedom because of the influence of the Bible, not just Christian. So often what we hear when, when people speak of, of the Christian influence on the Constitution or the Christian influence on the Founding Fathers, it's really a misrepresentation because 80% of the information that they, they, that they used, that they studied in order to understand the principles of freedom, came out of the Old Testament, came out of the Hebrew Scriptures, came out of the Mosaic Law. And as they studied the Mosaic Law, they understood what real freedom was in a political and civic sense. And by studying the Old Testament passages like 1 Samuel chapter 8 and uh, observing the ebb and flow of the corruption in, among the kings and the monarchy in the northern and southern kingdoms of uh, Israel and Judah, they understood where the threats were to freedom in a nation and the accumulation of wealth by the citizens so that all would benefit from it. And when you have a nation that has lost that and they no longer have a desire to be free, what they have is a desire to be dependent and for the government to take care of them from the cradle to the grave. And when you start mandating that, uh, 
to the government. Nowhere in the Old Testament was the government mandating the people to take to, to take from them in taxation to give to the support of the widows or the needy or the poor. In all these passages uh, that you have God uh, bringing an indictment against Israel for their failure to take care of the widows, it wasn't an indictment on the government. It was an indictment of the people because they failed to be responsible in the use of the resources and wealth that God gave them. It's not the government's responsibility. It is the individual responsibility. And when it shifts to the government, then we've lost freedom. But all of those things, this thought hit me several years ago when I was in Israel. The battles that were fought as the Israelites came out of Egypt and they fought the Amalekites and God gave them victory as Moses stood there with his arms elevated with Aaron and her holding up his holding up his arms as a sign of his dependence upon God. Battles that were fought, wars that were fought in the American War for Independence and Texas War for Independence. Those all are foreshadows, foreshadowings of the ultimate battle that was fought to uh, gain our freedom. And that battle was fought on Golgotha. It, it was a spiritual battle because we live in a universe where there is real evil and that real evil is in comes out of the decision-making of one creature known as Lucifer or Satan. And his desire is to overthrow the authority of God and to establish his own tyranny over creatures. And it is when, uh, and it is through sin that man comes under his greatest, greatest, the greatest tyranny and the greatest enslavement that there is. In John chapter 8, Jesus had an interchange with the Pharisees. And he, he talked about the fact that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And they said, well, we are free. But they weren't free. They weren't free spiritually because they were under the bondage of sin. They weren't free politically because they were under the heel of Rome. They weren't free in terms of their own religion because they were under the legalistic bondage of the pharisaical interpretation of the Mosaic law. So they weren't free. They weren't free at all. Yet they had convinced themselves that they were free. But real freedom doesn't exist in a political sense. It's not a military sense. Real freedom starts spiritually. And our freedom was founded at the cross. Galatians 6.1, Paul says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. If we're not free from the sin nature, we can never be free politically. And that's why the founders of the American Republic understood that Christianity, whether it was taught not necessarily even in an orthodox sense, but just looking at it as a moral system, was the only way to guarantee the continuation of freedom because you can't have freedom in an antinomian society. And yet we live in an antinomian society, and as we look back over the last 50 years, we've seen our freedoms gradually erode. The more so-called freedom that we have in an antinomian sense, the more political freedom we have lost. And if you compare the level of freedom that we have in this nation to the level of freedom in other nations, in many ways we are in greater bondage to our government than many other nations. 
simply because we have convinced ourselves of a fantasy. And that fantasy is that we are still a we still act like a constitutional republic, but we are far from following the dictates of the Constitution as envisioned by our founding fathers. And you cannot be a free people if you live in a fantasy world. And you cannot be a free people if you have constructed a false view of reality and you're basically created a castle in the sky and you moved in and you're living there. That's nothing more than being a little bit psychotic. You created your dream castle and you've moved in and you're living as if your fantasy is reality. And you can only have freedom and liberty when you face reality as it is. And so this week is a great week for us to reflect upon what a tremendous heritage we have and what we've lost. And to preserve that is a role of every citizen in this country, is to be involved at whatever level you can be involved, to be, to be doing whatever you can in the legal process, in the political process, in the economic process, in order to uh, change the way things are and to move things back to the way things should be. And you can't do that if you don't have an objective understanding of right and wrong and freedom, liberty, and responsibility. And if you don't have a an objective, absolute view of those things, then all you're talking about is one person's opinion versus another, and it ultimately ends up being whoever has the power determines the, or defines the terms, and which is where we've come as a culture. Anyway, that's my little introduction. I went a little longer than I intended on that, but I hope that uh, that gives everyone something to think about. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. I know we're in Romans but and on Acts on Tuesday night, but uh, we're going to start in uh, Acts tonight. We'll look at the conclusions we have from Romans chapter 1 verses 18 and following. In Romans chapter 1 verses 18 and following, the Apostle Paul gives one of the greatest explanations of the core problems in human history. In verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. That is, they suppress the truth on the one hand, they create a fantasy world on the other hand. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. See, there's a rejection of truth, suppression of truth, rejection of God, and when God is rejected, something moves in and replaces him. They become futile, that is, vain or empty, in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, key term in Greek thought, uh, sophos, wisdom, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things, the, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. So what are some conclusions that we can draw from that? 
Remember, I'm talking in terms of application of the principles we've seen in Romans 1.18 and following, especially in terms of communicating the gospel to those who don't know it, don't understand it, or who have not accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. First of all, what this passage tells us is that all men are inherently religious. Mankind is not inherently secular. Mankind is inherently religious. And whether that religion is expressed through a secular religion, and actually secular humanism was recognized by the Supreme Court of the United States in a decision in 1973 or 74, I believe, as a religion. The belief that there is no God is just as much a religious statement as the belief that there is a God. It's just plain logic. If the statement there is a God is religious, then its opposite must be equally religious. So there's no such thing as neutrality. There's no such thing as an area of life that is not touched by someone's belief in an ultimate power or reality. So all men are inherently religious. That is, they worship something. Even if all that they worship is their own belly, they worship something. They worship money. They worship an ideological system. They worship uh, their own lust patterns. They worship uh, uh, an idol made of wood, stone, or metal, or they worship some abstract ideology. But they all worship something. All men are inherently religious. They worship something. But what they worship is something within creation. That's the bent of fallen man. Second thing we learn from this passage is that all men are also in rebellion against God. They are truth suppressors. Uh, they are in rebellion against the Creator God as defined in the Old Testament. They are in rebellion against the Creator God because of sin. And thus they will always default to some substitute God. They create a fantasy. They create a fantasy reality based on their view of ultimate reality that is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the creator God of the Old Testament. All men also know, and just as they know that God exists, they know that they are in violation of God's standards. At the very core of their being, they know this, and that's why they're suppressing truth is because they don't want to come face-to-face -face with the reality that they don't measure up to the righteous standard of God. And they can't, no matter what. They can never reach perfection. Third thing we learn from this passage is that God created all men with an internal knowledge of his existence. It's known within them. And his external witness by what he has made in the universe is a witness that is sufficient to every human being so that they are without excuse. Every human being, no matter what they may claim, deep down in a dark corner where they've stuffed it, suppressed it, piled all their dirty, uh, dirty laundry over it to hide it, there is the knowledge of God and always peeking out at the most inappropriate times. Fourth thing we learn is that the ultimate issue in life was neither intellectual nor education. It's not IQ, it's not experience, but it's a moral decision to reject the knowledge of God. 
The problem with the unbeliever isn't that he doesn't have enough evidence. It isn't that it's not rationally presented, because it is. There's more than enough evidence, but he doesn't want to believe that's the way reality is. He doesn't want to submit to the authority of God who said, this is the way I have made things, not the way you wanted it. That's essentially what happened with Adam and Eve. They both wanted to redefine reality and say, there's nothing wrong with that fruit. No matter what God says, I'm going to act as if uh, it's not true. I'm going to create my own fantasy world. Nothing's going to happen, but something did happen. And the fifth thing we pointed out is that there are some people who've already understood who this creator God is, so the issue in communicating with them is different. When you're committing with a pagan who is committed to his pagan unbelief, then you cannot argue them to the gospel by virtue of reason, experience, or mysticism. Those are human systems of knowledge. When you try to do that, you're trying to go over to his foundation and construct eternity on on that foundation of sand. One thing that we've looked at and talked about in the last several lessons is that when you have the unbeliever committed to unbelief on the left and the believer committed to the authority of Scripture on the right, the question is, on what basis do you appeal for things such as truth and authority. What's the ultimate truth? Is it experience? Is it reason? Is it intuition or mysticism? Or is it scripture? And what I want to show you starting tonight, because I know we won't get through all of this tonight, is looking at examples from the scripture of how the apostles communicated to unbelievers and to show that they did not violate the foundation of scriptural authority by setting it aside and appealing to logic or to reason or to experience something in history as the ultimate determiner of truth. How they were able to uh, assume the authenticity of scripture, assume the authority and the veracity of scripture, And they never compromised it in how they communicated truth uh, to the unbeliever. So let's start in Acts chapter 2. What we'll see uh, is a certain overlap in some of the things that I'm talking about tonight. Let me see. um, We looked at this same passage on Tuesday night in Acts 2, talking about the resurrection again. Uh, Resurrection tonight, resurrection on Sunday morning. Just, I love it when God's plan comes together like that. Okay, Acts 2.14. Who's, Paul speak, who's Peter speaking to? He's talking to a group of, of Jewish men who are called devout men in Acts 2.5 from every nation under heaven who have come to Jerusalem in order to uh, celebrate at the day of Pentecost. So when he addresses them, he addresses them with the assumption that the common ground between them is the authority of the Scripture. Many of them were unbelievers, but he assumes the veracity and the authority of Scriptures and the prophets of Joel and of David and the Psalms, and he doesn't validate uh, the authority of Scripture. 
because he knows that he has that as common ground with his audience. They already know who God is as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We'll see the contrast in contrast between, uh, we'll see with Paul in uh, Lystra and later in Athens, where his audience had no idea who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was or who Jesus was. Paul takes a completely different approach. Paul also takes a different approach when he's dealing with a Jewish audience that already understands who God is. That's going back to that fifth point I made, that there are some people that you communicate the gospel to and they already understand who God is as the creator God of, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there are others that you communicate to who aren't there yet. So Peter addresses the audience with the assumptions that they know the Hebrew Scriptures. Second, he begins with a quotation from Joel related to the Messianic kingdom. They know already have this as a common understanding. And he follows this by a quotation from Psalm 16, 8 through 9, dealing with the, the uh, statement, the Messianic promise of David, that the Messiah would go into the grave, but his body would not be corrupted. In other words, the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be raised from the dead and that he would have victory over death. And then Psalm 110, verse 1, that God would raise him to heaven, that he would ascend to heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father, and that all authority is then given to him so that Jesus Christ is presented as the uh, authority, the divine authority over creation. And there's no compromise on that point within his presentation. So since third, since he's addressing a Jewish audience, he has the Old Testament as a common frame of reference. He never compromises the authority of Scripture. He doesn't seek to some other authority to validate Scripture. And he doesn't need to explain to them who God is, what creation is, or who the Messiah is. Now let's turn over to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, we have Peter's second sermon as recorded in Acts, starting down in about verse 13. So uh, Peter addresses them and starts to address them in verse 12. He says, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? So the, the, the context is that, the, that he and John have just uh, healed this lame man who sat outside, uh, outside the temple. But how does Peter begin? He doesn't begin in Genesis 1. He begins in Genesis 12. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. He starts with the common ground of the God of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because that is a common uh, ground that they have. He's not compromising with Scripture. He's assuming the authority of Scripture, and he doesn't step out from that uh, foundation. Second, he used, in this, this sermon, he uses messianic references from the Old Testament and appeals to the Hebrew prophets as his Old Testament, as his authority. His ultimate authority is this is what God said and this is how it's been uh, fulfilled. We see this in verse 18. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, he's not questioning or giving any ground on divine authority. Verse 24. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. 
And then in verse 25, you are sons of the prophets, meaning they're descendants of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So when he gets to the point of the resurrection, verse 26, he says, to you first God, having raised up his servant Jesus. See, the point of this sermon as with the one before, is on the resurrection of Jesus as the ultimate evidence and validation of who Jesus is as the Messiah. He's not appealing to it as an autonomous act of history. He is locating it within a biblical view of history. This is why he goes back in both both the Acts 2 sermon and the Acts 3 sermon. He goes back to Abraham and gives a context before he even begins to talk about resurrection. He doesn't just talk about resurrection as an isolated event where even the unbelieving mind of his Jewish audience could say, well, this is just some sort of aberration. This is some sort of oddity in in history. By establishing the Old Testament framework, he locates the resurrection within a, a context of Scripture. So, and then he goes on to talk about uh, the restoration of all things in verse 21, which is a reference to the Messianic kingdom. And then the phrase, he uses the phrase, the times of refreshing uh, will come in um, uh, down in verse 23. And this, again, emphasizes the Messianic uh, or excuse me, times of refreshing, verse 19, this emphasizes the Messianic kingdom is promised in the Old Testament. So he appeals to the resurrection within the context of Old Testament predictions. So it's not an isolated historical event where you're just looking at it uh, within the context of uh, how some apologetics are done in isolation of that Old Testament framework. You can't understand the resurrection if you don't understand the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Basically what I'm saying. Okay, Acts 4. You have the next situation when Peter and John uh, have been arrested and now they address the Sanhedrin. And in their address to the Sanhedrin, we see the same thing happening. The appeal is made to the Scriptures without compromising its authority, and they quote from passages such as uh, Psalm 118, uh, verse 22, in establishing uh, what they are saying, and that's in Acts 4.11, Uh, referring to Jesus as a stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Then they conclude with the statement, nor is there salvation any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So again, they are locating their explanation and defense of their gospel message on the basis of Old Testament authority. Now let's skip over a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we have Stephen's uh, sermon and his challenge to the authority and abuse of authority by the Pharisees. Notice how he begins in verse 2. Stephen says, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Where does he start? He starts, he's talking to a Jewish audience who believes in in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's where he starts in his communication of the gospel to this Jewish audience. He appeals to Scripture throughout the entire chapter, 
and he never compromises the authority. So just some quick conclusions. Uh, and first of all, in addressing a Jewish audience, Peter and Stephen operate on the common ground of Scripture. They never compromise the authority of Scripture by appealing to reason, appealing to logic, or appealing to uh, experience of history as if it operates independently of the authority of Scripture. History is what it is because God says it is. Facts are what they are, not because they operate autonomously, but because they are what God says they are. And so they always establish their facts that they're talking about within the framework of divine revelation and divine authority. If we go on and look at some other things coming up, in Acts 8, we have Philip talking to the Ethiopian eunuch, but the Ethiopian eunuch already believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so there is, again, the common ground of scriptural authority. Uh, Same with Paul in Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 19 and following, or 20 and following, that we say uh, Saul preached the Messiah in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. So he starts from a framework of a scripture as, uh, as his common ground. Um, Peter, in Acts chapter 10, does the same thing with Cornelius. In all these instances, you have individuals who believe in the God of the Old Testament. So the starting point is with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his work and his uh, revelation in the Old Testament. Now, the situation changes after Acts chapter uh, 12 or 13 when Peter, I mean, when Paul and Barnabas go on the first missionary journey. And so the, the place where we're going to look is in Acts chapter 14 as Paul uh, speaks to the Gentiles, addresses the Gentiles in Lystra. It's the first missionary journey. Uh, Lystra is located here. On the map, this is, you see this area here is the area that at that time was generally known as Anatolia, which was a Greek term for the east because this is east of Greece. And uh, under the Roman Empire, was divided into various provinces, Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, uh, Lycia, Cilicia. And in Lycia, you have these three cities. I have Lystra and Iconium within the circle and just at the uh, 330 position, on, uh, you have the city of Derby. Those were the three main cities that uh, the Apostle Paul went to. But in Acts 14, we're just focused on Iconium and Lystra. This is in the first first missionary journey. Now, here's the context. The context is they're going to he's going to Greek speaking people who do not have a framework for the Old Testament. But before he goes anywhere, he always first goes to a synagogue. So first he went to Iconium, and that's covered in the first uh, three verses of Acts chapter 14. And he goes uh, and he addresses the uh, synagogue of the Jews. And in the synagogue, there are both Jews and Gentiles. Now the Gentiles, that are the Greeks that are in the synagogue, are God-fearing Greeks. They have become proselytes to, uh, to Judaism. They become part of the of the synagogue. And as Paul explains the credentials of Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, we're told at the end of verse 1 that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. They trusted in Christ as their Savior. But in that midst, you have unbelieving Jews. These are the Jews that are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, 
And as a result, when the truth is given, then and that God consciousness is being tweaked, then they react. There's one of two things that happen when the gospel is proclaimed to people. Number one is that in humility they accept it and believe it. And in the second is they get they don't like it. It doesn't fit their fantasy world that they've constructed that is in opposition to it. And so they react in anger and hostility. And so this is what happens. The unbelieving Jews then go out to the uh, Gentiles in the broader context of Iconium, and they poison their minds against their brethren. They distort what uh, Paul has said, and they twist it so that they can generate uh, opposition from the legal authorities. And um, we're told in verse 3 that uh, Paul and Barnabas stayed there a long time, uh, continuing to speak boldly in the Lord, and it's accompanied with signs and wonders as their credentials, their bona fides of the message that they are proclaiming. But the multitude becomes further and further divided because these unbelieving Jews are stirring things up. So you have two groups of Jews. You have a large group that believed and a large group that didn't, and so everything's getting all stirred up. And uh, violence uh, breaks out, and the, uh, the unbelievers want to stone uh, Paul and Barnabas. And as they become aware of it, they leave, and they head south from Iconium to Lystra. Now, Lystra, something important happens as they present the gospel. In verse 8, we're told that in Lystra, a certain man uh, without strength in his feet uh, was sitting a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. And this man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently, seeing that he had faith to be, to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet, and he leaped up and he walked. So we have a miracle that uh, uh, attests to the authority of the Apostle Paul and is a validation of, of their message. Now what happens when this miracle occurs is that the people in, in town who are pagans, notice how they reinterpret what's happened because this is what is typical of truth suppression is that in truth suppression, as soon as you see something that is that, that is biblical, you reinterpret it within your pagan framework. And so immediately when they see this, rather than saying, this has never happened before, this is unique, they, they must, this must be something different. They don't want anything different. And they immediately reinterpret uh, this advantage. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And they call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because Paul's the chief speaker. Hermes was the messenger of the God, so he's the one who spoke. And uh, so they're identifying them within their pagan uh, religious system. Now, when we start to look at this, we have to understand a few things about the paganism of that day. It's not a lot different from the paganism of today. I've used this before. Any system of thought has to deal with ethics, how we know what we know, and what ultimate reality is. You can't separate these things. As soon as somebody says, this is right or this is wrong, you have to ask the question, how do you know you're right? Is it just majority opinion makes things right? Well, that's not ultimate right. Law has to be grounded in something that has uh, universal application. So you, you can't make decisions about something being right or wrong 
uh, if you don't have a way of testing it, validating it. That's your epistemology. You have to have a basis for what you know. And that leads to what's behind it. What's the ultimate reality in the universe? Metaphysics. Now, in, in Greek thought, since the time of the pre-Socratics, Thales, Anaximander, uh, Anaximenes, uh, down through Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and the uh, later uh, beliefs of the Epicureans and the uh, Stoics, which we'll talk about, we won't get to them in Acts 17 until next week, all have a similar view. They, they have rejected, in Greek philosophy, there's really a rejection of the gods of the old ancient Greek pantheon. Uh, in, in, the, in many areas, they still followed certain superstitions, but they didn't really believe it. And so they, they had this, they tried to construct a unified view of reality, which was really given development by Aristotle. Now, you can't read all of that on the chart up there, but that's a, a chart of what is called the chain of being. And to understand this is to understand most pagan thought. Most pagan thought sees, you see, you see God, if you can't read it, you see the vertical line at the top. God is at the top. Below that, you have angels, and then demons, and then man, and then animals, and then plants, and then minerals, and then non-being. So on the left side, you have this movement from being at the top, the realm of being, the realm of becoming, and then non-being at the bottom. But it's all one line. That's not the biblical view. In paganism, God just has more being than man does. And man just has more being than plants do. And plants have more being than rocks do. But we're all on the same chain of being. That's why you have a perfect example of this with the UN passing uh, this resolution that the um, plants and the animals can be legally represented against human beings if there is environmental abuse. They're buying into the chain of being. There's ultimately no difference between you and a bug, except you have, you're just a little higher up the scale of being. And so all paganism buys into this, and ultimately this is no different from uh, evolution. In fact, Aristotle held to a uh, form of evolution articulated within their, uh, their, their framework. So this is what Paul is dealing with, is people who are thinking in this way. Their view of God isn't a God who is a separate and distinct creator that is radically different from everything in the creation, and he doesn't share the same essence or, or being with everything that he has created. And so he's got to talk about God in a completely separate and distinct way, which is what he does when you come to Acts 14, verses 15 and 16. He says as they they start worshiping him, uh, he and Barnabas rip their clothes off. They they know what the issue is. It's either to be worshipped like a god and have their message plugged into this same pagan chain of being so that they sort of uh, assimilate to the pagan view a little bit, or they will be stoned. How's that for an option? You can say that you're, you know, we're talk, really talking about the same God. 
It would be very easy to do that. In fact, that's how most Christians witness. They're talking to an unbeliever and say, see, we're talking about pretty much the same thing. No, you're not. Don't give up your ground. You just gave up the battle. As soon as you start saying, we're talking about the same thing, you lost. Because you're not talking about the same thing. They're talking about the chain of being. You're talking about a creator God who is totally other than all of his creation. And so... Paul, who recognizes that there's only two kinds of people, they're either creator worshipers or they're creature worshipers, isn't going to settle for a compromise. He rips his garments to show how horrible this is. And he says, men, why are you doing these things? We're men of the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things. That's the vain things. That's the same word that's used over there in Romans chapter 1 for worshiping empty things. Turn from these vain things, these useless things, to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Where's that? Genesis 12 or Genesis 1? He goes back to Genesis 1. Before he can get to the cross or resurrection, he's got to make sure they understand that they're talking about a different God, the God who created everything. The doctrine of creation isn't some secondary thing. If you don't communicate the gospel within the framework of a literal Genesis 1 creation, you're grounding the gospel on a false god, a non-biblical deity. Paul, both here and we'll see it in Acts 17, grounds his gospel before he even gets to the cross or the resurrection or anything else. Where does he go? You've got to understand that resurrection isn't something that's an isolated historical event that you can talk about Uh, in a way that is distinct from Genesis 1. They're connected. It's the God of Genesis 1 who creates all things and gives life to all things, who is the God who can then bring Jesus from the dead and give him life and raise him from the dead. It's without Genesis 1, you can't get to the resurrection, and he wants to make sure that he's identifying what the resurrection truth is before he and where it comes from before he throws it out there. Otherwise, their pagan thought is just going to absorb it like an amoeba and reinterpret it as just another oddity in history, and we'll just put Jesus up on the mantle with all of the other gods and all of the other uh, philosophers. So what we see in Acts 14, the principle we want to see from that is that Paul, when he's addressing pagans, he doesn't start in Genesis 12. There's no frame of reference or common ground with the Old Testament Scripture. He starts, though, without compromising Scripture. He starts with the fact that you have to understand who God is before you can understand what I'm going to say to you about sin, salvation, and resurrection. So next time we will start here and we will come back to Acts 17. Okay, why don't I pray, and then I'll announce that. Okay, 
Let's close in prayer. When I close in prayer, you all don't leave. Let me make that announcement, and then we'll go. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study what we have studied tonight, to come to, first of all, to a realization that real freedom begins in the soul, and real freedom begins once the sin problem, the slavery to sin problem, is dealt with. All other freedom is merely the result of that. We have, and we have had, great freedom in this nation, freedom to proclaim truth, freedom to support Israel, freedom to send out missionaries, but that freedom is under threat. It's under threat by an overreaching federal government and for men and women in positions of power who seek to increase the power of federal government at the expense of individual responsibility and freedom. And therein lies the path to perdition. Father, we pray that you would preserve this nation. We pray that there would be uh, that you would raise up men and women who have a great and clear understanding of the realities of the universe as you created, created it, and that they would bring that to bear on the challenges facing, facing our nation. But above all, we pray that as individual believers, we might be faithful in our understanding of your authority, the authority of Scripture, and that we might uh, understand the lessons that we're studying in relation to Romans 1, and an evangelism that we might use this to apply to our own conversations with unbelievers and that we might come to a greater understanding of the significance of your authority and the truth of Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Did you switch over?